Hello and welcome to Data is Plural, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Singer Vine. On this episode, we have University of Oregon professor Maddie Burkert, whose London stage database I featured in the August 18th, 2019 edition of the Data is Plural newsletter. Without further ado, here we go. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Maddie Burkert. How would you summarize the London Stage Database in a sentence? You know those what's on listings in like Time Out, New York or London? Like what's on at the theater tonight? It's, it's like what's on 1660 to 1800. And that is, uh, to me, an interesting time period. I uh, imagine it has some significance, 1660 to 1800. What is it? We're familiar with sort of the Shakespearean era, and then there's this gulf of 20 years of civil war, and then the restoration theater, you know, starting with the 1660 restoration of the monarchy is this kind of new heyday for theater. And particularly in the 1670s is when a lot of the more famous plays from that era um, are first written and staged. And then through the 18th century, really, although scholars have often focused on the novel as the kind of main piece of 18th century literature that we think about, the theater was the main kind of pop culture, like publicly accessible medium, didn't require literacy, and was in some ways, I mean, while, you know, no culture was really fully economically accessible to everyone in English society at this time, a little more accessible. Who could afford to go to theater around this time? This is something that scholars debate. But what we do know is that theater critics spent a lot of time breaking down what they perceived to be the makeup of the audience. And it was you know, then as now the case that there were different price tiers for different kinds of seats. So it does appear that there was a section of the theater where hipsters, like early modern hipsters, <laughs> the wits in the pit, huh. depending on who you listen to, like kind of like rowdy bros or like, you know, like hipsters griping about how much the place stinks, people aspiring to be tastemakers ma and, and not actually having that much status, that would be who was in the pit, which is like the area in front of the stage. There were boxes where wealthy people sat. There were kind of like nosebleed seats where their servants could hang out during the show so that they could drive them home afterwards. We do think it was like kind of a, a, a mix, but that it was very much broken up by class in terms of where you were seated and who was around you. What kind of performances were taking place on the stages then? And what if that might surprise us in comparison to theater going today? Yeah, then as now there were comedies, tragedies, kind of dramas. The thing that was really, I think, a little bit different, well, I guess a couple things. One is that an evening at the theater was not just like, I'm going to see this play. It was really a kind of multi-part spectacle. So there would be um, often prologues and epilogues, which were these sort of short um monologues or kind of set pieces that were often topical and would sort of connect the play to what was going on in the moment there was uh usually 
a collection of musical and dance interludes in between the acts. Maybe in between act one and two that someone might sing like an aria. And then in between acts two and three, somebody might do like a dance. And then in in between acts three and four, somebody might do like a magic trick. And um, there was also uh, usually an afterpiece, which was, you know, as opposed to the full length, like five act play. There'd be this kind of like one act play afterwards. There was also this idea of kind of like half price admission. So people would come in for half price if they came in after the third act of the main play. And this was very common. And and actually, it was so important to people that there were many very violent <laughs> riots over preserving the right to come to plays at half price after the third act. And so I think that gives you a sense of how much like the plot of the main play was not the main reason people were showing up. Could you walk us through how we got from something being performed, let's say in 1750, to a record in your database? Yeah, so I think one thing about the database that is very near and dear to my heart is that one of the goals is to show how messy that provenance is and kind of make that part of the experience and part of the fun. Um, so the, you know, say it's a, a given night in 1750, maybe there's a playbill and a couple of newspaper advertisements um, that are in, you know, the British library, say, and then it's, it's like, you know, 1955, and a scholar comes and looks at those and puts them on an index card. And then from 1960 to 1968, these reference books come out. And this group of, you know, half a dozen scholars had gone around to a lot of the major archives, written down as much as they could about what was in the newspapers, um, and tried to put together a performance calendar based on what they had found. Uh, so that was published in the 1960s by Southern Illinois University Press. It was called the London stage 1660 to 1800. And it was about 8,000 pages long, wow. 11 books. Then almost immediately after creating it, they realized that they had kind of forgotten to create any way to index across volumes. So they uh, commissioned this professor at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, who was at the forefront of what we would call digital humanities now in some ways. He was like, tinkering with how might we use computers to do literature and drama scholarship. And, you know, there were a handful, there were enough people doing that. There was a journal called Computers and the Humanities. And so he put out like a an SOS, like, can somebody help me with this? Then for eight years or so, um, they worked on creating a database. And this is like the mainframe computing era. So, you know, it's all on like tape reels and they're time sharing a computer at the Institute for Paper Chemistry next door, really just to create an index. Like that's their whole goal is just the database is a means to an end, which is to create an index that can be shelved alongside the other books in this 8,000 page reference series. So that's 19, like 1970 to 1978 that, that they're working on that. And they called it the London Stage Information Bank. They published the index shortly thereafter, maybe 1979, I think. And, uh, and then they're like, well, this is a really, you know, this is a really valuable resource. We should try to like let people use it. So they said that you could write in with queries and then they would run the queries over at the Institute for Paper Chemistry. And then they would send you back the results, it, like once you, you sent them a check. It didn't work. And so in 1983, when the professor who had led this project retired, he donated the tape reels to the Harvard Theater Collection. Um, that It appears that at some point they tried to migrate them forward onto floppy disks. And 
uh they were like checked out but never checked back in hmm. um so that was kind of a dead end uh but it also turns out that at some point in the 90s someone i don't know who did save these to floppy disks left them on a desk at lawrence university archives without like any metadata or like wow just a stack of floppies on a desk huh and how did you learn about those floppies I was just starting my dissertation. I had been trying to create a database from the London Stage Reference Books using like FileMaker Pro <laughs> and uh, and sort of like realizing that this was completely pointless and, and Herculean. And uh, my, one of my committee members, I guess, ran across the Computers and the Humanities article saying it was like a one page advertisement. I basically kind of followed a breadcrumb trail that led me to a memoir that the professor had written about the process in 1974 which led me to realize that he had where he had been based and i and then that made me think well i'm you know i'm a two-hour drive from there right now because i did my phd at the university of wisconsin madison um so i called they said looks like we've got two boxes on that and then when i got there the archivist said yeah we've got two boxes there's also this stack of floppy disks that was just on my desk when i got the job wow and uh and then i found the programmer who had worked on it on LinkedIn and cold called him. And he said he had overwritten the all of the code base years before, but he did have a printout of the full code base in his attic, um, which he then photographed page by page and sent to me. Incredible. Uh, so you have this stack of floppy disks and you have photographs of source code that were initially used as part of that project. What was the next step? I presented on the very beginnings of this work at a conference in 2014. And I think it was through that that a couple of other people who were barking up similar trees, like we found kind of found one another. So one of those people, um, uh, Derek Miller, who is a professor now at Harvard, was very generous and and tinkered with what I had off the floppy disks, which I had figured out that it was completely garbled. Like the, the amount of bit rot that had happened, it was unreadable and like unusable. And I sort of was like, I was in despair about it, basically. He figured out that what had happened was a kind of encoding error had caused um, a, a shift in the underlying like hexadecimal, uh, which he was able to programmatically reshift. Wow. It made the data usable. It gave me hope that the data was usable. So you do all this work, uh, and now you have the data. What do you see? What's there? So it's a flat file database. So they had I had some of the documentation from the archives at Lawrence University. So I knew that they had created their own kind of custom encoding schema using asterisk characters. Um, so like asterisk P denotes the start of the name of a performance. Asterisk A denotes the start of a afterpiece performance, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, in theory, then you can write a parsing program to go through and get everything. I mean, in reality, it was like much messier than that. What else did you have to do to get the London Stage database to the place it is now? The authors weren't in there at all. Um, that was actually gathered by Emma Halleck, who was the undergraduate research assistant on the project for a while. And that is based on her going through other kind of existing resources, finding aids, databases. And we did that because people like want to look for authors, but actually, you know, the 18th century theory cared very little about authors. So hmm. that's 
interesting in and of itself. And then breaking up the cast list, because there are cast lists for a lot of performances where you can see like what actor was billed for what role. But the reference book to save on ink doesn't list the cast lists for every performance. If it's the same as like earlier in the season, like it says as and then the date where the Hmm. cast list is more or less the same. And then most often a list of substitutions. That was like an absolute nightmare to try to then recursively move back up through what they called the ladder system. Uh, And that was all, I think, you know, Todd Huey, who got to bang his head against that particular wall for a few months. So there's a lot of work involved. How many people over the years have participated in the construction of the London Stage Database? Well, my version is uh, many dozens um, you know, in terms of the London Stage Information Bank, I've been really interested in how they did not really document the labor that went into it. So they had to transcribe the full reference book, but they actually outsourced that work to um, China data systems in Hong Kong. And this happens all the time today in digital humanities. Um, you know, many of uh, the core databases are sort of like silently outsourced. And in, in this case, because it was... Tw- one fifth of the price of what the US based CompuScan would have charged. Hmm. Um, so I've been trying and so far failing to uncover the names of, um, they were all women, as I've been able to figure out, it was all women, probably. And I think one of them was named Cindy Luke, but only their supervisor, Philip Huey, is credited in the index, hmm. even though it seems like there were many, many women who did the actual typing. And, um, and then there were at least like 18 undergraduate student editors who worked on the project over the course of the 1970s, early 80s. Only maybe one is named. There were at least four graduate students who worked on it. They are credited. Some of the folks who built software for the project are named and others aren't. It's become something I'm really committed to, like documenting the labor, but also like there are many people who contributed to this whose names I might not ever know. What is... I'd say one or two things where you feel like it's really that human input that makes a big difference that we should know about. Yeah. So one reason I'm trying really hard to figure out who the typists were at China Data Systems is because, you know, I've read the documentation that they were working with and it's pretty ambiguous and they had to make a lot of choices. For example, in the original reference books, there's the calendar that's like this play on this date, this play on this date. But there's a section at the beginning of each theatrical season with a list of plays we think might have been staged during this season hmm. based on the fact that like they were published this year or there's a reference in someone's diary, but it doesn't have a date. One of the typists decided to include those in the calendar and gave them zero dates and one or more chose not to. So then once we figured out that that was happening, we had to make a decision of what we were going to do. And I think, you know, we decided not to include those entries with the zero dates for a host of reasons. But, um, but it, you know, it felt really bad, like erasing someone's labor and also sort of erasing the significance of a decision that they had made that shapes the data set. A big thanks to Maddie for this interview. Our conversation, like all others on the podcast, has been edited to fit into 15 minutes. Additional thanks to Nikhil Sonat, who composed this season's theme music, and to Brian Banks for helping to shape the entire endeavor. And thank you for listening. To subscribe to the Data is Plural newsletter, 
visit data-is-plural.com. Thank you.